this is a, a debate or a panel discussion entitled Ukraine in the Crosshairs of History. I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas and I'm chairing tonight. I'd like to particularly thank though my colleague Ella Whelan for organising this event, uh, who is over there and also organising the live stream as we speak. Um, this event is partly inspired by an essay that's just been published by Professor Frank Faradi entitled The Revenge of History. It's just been published by Spiked Online, which has been indispensable which is indispensable reading at the best of times, Spiked, but it's been particularly important in the last couple of weeks for me. And I think they've really risen to the challenge of this crisis. But Frank is a prolific writer and world-renowned European public intellectual and author most recently of 100 Years of Identity Crisis. But also, he wrote a book, First World War, Still No End in Sight. Now, what year was that, Frank? Was that 2014? 20... 2014. So I, I, I read and enjoyed the book, but I can safely say I didn't understand its significance until the last two weeks. And then suddenly I thought, oh, I keep thinking about this book now. So um, it's always, you know, it's, it's unrewarding being a, a, an author because people don't always get it for a while, but it might just be me that's slow. But anyway, lots of things about it have resonated. So Frank's going to talk about some of the things... Oh, my goodness. Somebody's <laughs> celebrating. We're on the brink of World War Three, and somebody's having a party at the back. Right, anyway. <laughs> um, Frank's going to uh, talk a little bit about that essay and the themes in that essay, which people can, uh, if you haven't read it, because it's only just been published, you can digest afterwards. And then we're going to have some responses. We're going to hear from um, Tim Stanley, who's a columnist and leader writer at the Daily Telegraph. And he's the author of Whatever Happened to Tradition, History, Belonging and the Future of the West, which are actually key themes in Frank's essay, Tradition, History and the Future of the West, key themes for this very moment, in fact. Uh, so it's very pertinent. I'm delighted Tim has been able to join us. He's a Radio 4 regular, as you'll know, on Thought of the Day, and uh, a regular on uh, Radio 4's Moral Maze. And I did think that was appropriate because if anything feels like a moral maze, it's the situation we face now in terms of uh, a geopolitics, it seems to me. And then we'll also be hearing from Joan Hoey, who is Director at Europe at the Economist Intelligence Unit, where she leads a team of 15 an an analysts uh, forecasting political and economic developments in 50 European countries, she personally is a specialist in the UK, Greece, the Balkans and Eastern Europe and is also the editor of the EIU's Democracy Index. And Joan really is a specialist in Eastern Europe, but she's also a very thoughtful uh, contributor to events that we've had in the past from the Battle of Ideas through to uh, uh, the Academy. So I'm delighted she's uh, joining us. There are lots of big questions here tonight, aren't there? Is this just another war? Is it more of NATO interference? You know, is it just like Iraq or Libya? Or are there greater consequences for geopolitics and the world order? I just made a joke about World War Three, but, you know, we're hearing a lot of people talking about World War Three. Is that just hyperbole? It's been described this moment as a violent return of history. And certainly the unresolved questions of power and territory that have lurked beneath the surface of society that many of us haven't even noticed have come uh, uh, back with the bang. And in just a couple of weeks, all those old certainties have been turned on their head. What we thought was the end of the Cold War 
that it might mean the end of history and the era of permanent peace in Europe uh, is definitely uh, dis you know, gone away. And here we are, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, with a hot war at the heart of Europe, it seems. So I think that that's thrown a lot of people, certainly thrown me. And, um, you know, that phrase, all that is solid melts into, into air, it feels like that all change, and yet it also feels like that without the progressive dynamic, and that everything's turned on its head. So my uh, plea to us all tonight is that this is a work in progress. I'm sure that the panellists have got a clearer view than I have, certainly, of what's going on. But what we've asked them to do is to give us some food for thought. We're then going to discuss it. Frank's going to do a 15, 20-minute lecture. Uh, Tim and Joan are going to give us seven or eight, uh, nine minutes responding. Um, and then I'm going to be coming out, to, and then Frank can respond to them. Then I'll come out to the audience and we'll take clumps of questions, typically Academy of Ideas, Battle of Ideas style. But I suppose the, the thing I wanted to say to you is, is that just be um, frank and open-minded and we all probably need a little bit of humility to try and understand what's going on. Um, but this is a, uh, the first of what I hope will be a series of discussions on this. When I say I hope, you know, I was doing talk radio this morning and um, the person I was, you know, the, the person on Mike Graham said to me, when I hear this peace talks, it might be all over at the weekend. And I thought, no, it's not like that, Mike. As much as I would like that to be the case, I think this is something that's going to be having an impact on us for some time to come in whatever form. And so therefore we will be using tonight to launch those kind of discussions. So can we give a warm welcome to all our speakers. Yeah, just echoing what Claire uh, was saying, it's quite important that we keep our minds open and not come to any hasty conclusions. Uh, from my own experience, a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know, who overnight became COVID experts, <laughs> and suddenly mutated into becoming Ukrainian experts. <laughs> and it happens almost magically that they know everything there is to know about these particular kind of events. And I think in particular, when what's happening now, uh, there's so much propaganda on all sides that uh, whenever I see the screen and I see Russian tanks being blown up, or whenever I see you know, the Russians talking about Nazis in the Ukraine, I almost instinctively become skeptical and not, do not necessarily believe everything that I see. But nevertheless, there are a number of things that we can take for granted as being critically important. And there are certain moral issues at stake here uh, which, which, on which we should take a stand from this point onwards because the issues at stake are really, really formidable. What I really want to talk about is, uh, what I wrote about uh, the last couple of days, is the phenomenon of historical amnesia and the impact that historical amnesia has had on the outlook of people that run our governments in the West, but also who run the governments on the other side in the East. Uh, an inability to understand that history has not returned. You know, history is not like a person that's like Rip Van Winkle gone to sleep and then kind of wakes up. History has been here all the time. It's just that a lot of people refuse to recognize the continuity uh, that existed 
it's what's been going on for hundreds of years, particularly since the 19th century, but particularly since Second World War. As I was coming down to London from Kent, the import of historical amnesia was really brought home to me by a commentary written in The Guardian by Robert Reich. He used to be Bill Clinton's Secretary of Labor. He's quite a well-known American uh, commentator, has written many, many books. He's regarded as a bit of a guru on the global economy. And he basically uh, sort of <coughs> re-personifies what I take to be the principal cultural disease of our time, which is, as I said, historical amnesia. So basically what Reich did was to say, I've been wrong all along, which is refreshing. It's always good when a, when a serious commentator acknowledges that they got it wrong. So I've been wrong all along because he thought that history came to an end, nationalism had disappeared, or was more or less something that existed on the margins of the Western world. He believed that borders had become irrelevant. We live in a post-border kind of society. He believed that democracy was inevitable, and he also believed that nuclear wars could never ever happen again. Okay, the guy is foolish, you know, not surprising given the fact that he was Clinton's uh, <laughs> so Secretary of Labor. But nevertheless, his historical amnesia, his, his belief that we live in a post-nation, a post-border kind of a world where everything is globalized and that is really all that matters, is a kind of outlook that dominated thinking on geopolitics, on international relations for some times. And I think that what's interesting about Reich and his co-thinkers in Britain and America in general, the Western elites, is that they failed to grasp that at the moment when they realize they've been wrong, it's not that they are finally catching up with present-day reality, but rather that they're very, very slowly catching up with the past. They're very, very slowly getting back to where they should have been a long time ago. For a long time now, uh, especially amongst the cultural uh, milieus within, within uh, sort of Western societies, there was this kind of act of self-deception which continually emphasized the newness of our era. We live in a new era. The number of times you hear that kind of rhetorical accomplishment, a new era, end of history. It's a post uh, sort of uh, global, postmodern world, a globalized world that is nothing like what existed in the past. We live in a social media era where information is now so transparent and clear that we finally kind of get to know everything. Right? There was that kind of fantasy that was extremely powerful. And I think what the tragic events in the Ukraine demonstrate to us is that history cannot be unmade. It's not something that you can just casually leave behind. We have to come to terms uh, from this point onwards with its uh, inescapable truths. When I wrote my study, First World War Still No End in Sight, uh, it seemed to me that the Western world had embarked on a long march from its past. Throughout the last 12 decades, it has restlessly sought to detach itself from its historical legacy and values and the moral outlook that was associated with it. And I think what we've seen and becomes very, very clear today is that in all but words, the West has morally disarmed itself. 
in that period became morally estranged from just about everything that made Western culture, Western civilization, in a sense, what it is. And the implications of this development, and the implications are devastating, could be totally ignored during the decades of the Cold War. Because during the decades of the Cold War, the West could parasitically live off its moral authority that it had in relation to the Soviet Union. In other words, as long as the Soviet Union was there, as long as the Soviet bloc was there, the West could look good. We're the free world. You know, we are a democratic bloc, not like these dictatorships on the other side of the divide. And in that context, during those decades, it didn't have to do very much, the West didn't have to do very much to maintain its moral authority and to legitimate itself. It didn't really have to think about the big uh, issues of our time. Now, since the Cold War ended, the ability to maintain this stance is not possible. It's gradually unraveling and has unraveled over that time. And in particular, the reason why this is important is because when you become detached from the past, when you lose sight of uh, the legacy that, that nourished the outlook that, that serves as a foundation for making sense of the world, what you also happens is you lose your geopolitical sensibility. Your capacity to understand geopolitical issues, particularly capacity to understand your national interest and the national interest of others, becomes considerably diminished. And you can see this very, very clearly in the last 20 or 30 years, when you had all this, uh, all this attempt to talk about this fantasy of a new international order a global order where nations and national conflicts could be somehow regulated uh, through certain forms of rules and international bodies. And yet a situation where very, very often the Foreign Office here in Britain or the State Department in the United States really began to come across like a bunch of social workers, you know, continually going on about humanitarianism and continually going on about, you know, their new kind of, newly kind of values. And whenever anybody opened their mouth and said, we should really be thinking about our national interest, that was somehow denounced as being selfish. That was somehow seen as being bad. Somehow uh, uh, a prelude to becoming uh, an, an invasive uh, dynamic force. So that sensibility was very, very important. And, and it's at this point in time that as geopolitics diminishes as a kind of uh, art, which is really important for any ruling elites in any kind of society, <clears throat> it's at this point in time that for America, for example, uh, embarks on the road of becoming the world's regime changer. And every regime it finds, it kind of morally denounces as being inferior because it hasn't got the same high standards of democracy as you have in Idaho or, or in Texas. And uh, you know, decides that hey, it's high time that Colonel Gaddafi went, and they were replaced by you know, American educated Democrats with predictable results. Similar things happened in Iraq and in Syria, and in a number of other places. And I think that kind of attitude indicated uh, uh, some very big problems. One of the consequences of this was uh, that uh, the West became, to some extent, 
unable to understand Russia's security anxieties and never really understood that just because there was a regime change in, in Russia and just because uh, Yeltsin, Gorbachev handed power to Yeltsin and Yeltsin eventually to Putin, uh, that things were far more fragile and far more uh, unstable than it seemed out to the outside world. And in particular, it never had that kind of strategic empathy which you need to defeat a power, especially a regional superpower, which what Russia is, and then in order to kind of alleviate any of those uh, anxieties that they, may, may, that they might have had. It never actually understood this problem because it had lost the capacity to think geopolitically. One of the things that happened as this occurred, which I think is particularly relevant for the British context, but it's also relevant throughout Europe, is that as we, as we, as we lost sight of history, as we thought that it was there in the past, it no longer made very much of sense, the values of the past were also seen as being discredited. And I'm not just talking about values to do with sexuality or all the kind of issues that are, relevant, that are continually debated in the culture wars. I think there are other kind of basic uh, values. I, they might sound really old-fashioned now. And whenever I talk to them about my students, they often smirk and think that Ferreira is this old schmuck who you know, <laughs> believes in the value of duty. Whenever they I mention the word duty, huge laughter. This is, this is something that's no longer rele relevant. When I mention values like responsibility or service, loyalty, right? Loyalty in a world where every young kid that I meet is already, and has got a job, is already thinking of their next job because there's no such thing as a job for life. <coughs> and uh, their, their commitment is to CV that shows just how fast they went from one job to another. And that kind of you know, promiscuous sense of instability a lack of commitment, which I actually celebrated, is really quite important. And finally, patriotism. I mean, you know, when I talk to teachers about the importance of patriotism, they are embarrassed. They, they, they think this is not a subject that's fit to, for, a, for a classroom. How can you promote patriotism, a commitment to the community that you belong to? So if you have all these values being trashed, and in particular trashed by the people on top, not by ordinary people, but by people on top who are the most vociferous opponents of these kinds of values, then it's not surprising that another value, which uh, is even more regarded as outlandishly bad, and which is the value of what I think is still, still really quite important, that of the warrior ethos, that actually men, and for that matter women, you know, should be, uh, in a sense, ready to fight and not only be ready to fight, but see the need to fight to defend their communities as part and parcel of, of their responsibility. That ethos, you know, sort of is seen today as being far too masculine. You know, it's far too heteronormative. You know, it's far, it's got all kinds of negative kind of qualities that are attached to it, which is not what civilized, educated people do. Um, the warrior ethos is seen as being, and of course you can see the result of that. When you look at the British Army, where, you know, in, within the British Army, the kind of lectures they're not going to get senators. You know, remind me of the empty-headed sociological lectures given by my colleagues in sociology departments throughout the uh, higher education system in, in the United Kingdom, uh, where they basically told that essentially they have to be 
they have to, you know, they have to bear arms because you're in the army, but your job is to be a sensitive social worker rather than anything else. And, and you will probably have read last week about the big discussions in the army about the need for there to be a vegan, vegan introducing vegan uniforms because uh, at least a minority of the military forces believe that you know, leather and other kind of products that are not animal friendly is not the way forward. I mean, just think about that. While people are fighting for their lives in the Ukraine, you know, soldiers here in Britain are being encouraged to think about such silly, silly kind of issues. But that's, that is, in a sense, uh, an extreme example, but it's an example that captures this kind of uh, confusion and disorientation of what an army should look like, what a foreign policy should look like, what national interest should, should look like. And I think that's the context for what's happening in the Ukraine. Because at a certain point, uh, Putin decided that uh, given the fact that, he's been, you know, that his security needs haven't been met, but at the same time the West has indicated that he wasn't going to fight, when, when Biden more or less said there is no such thing as a red line as far as we're concerned, he basically gave, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, Putin a free pass basically indicated that there is no risk, no real serious <coughs> risk uh, to enter into the Ukraine because all that you're going to face is economic sanctions. And you don't need a PhD in military history to know that economic sanctions do not stop tanks and they do not prevent airplanes from dropping bombs or, or uh, on, on, on your people or, or prevent missiles from hitting your own towns. British right. missiles? Operation Orbital was British missiles. Yeah, uh, good for you. I mean, we, we all know that these are British missiles. But uh, there's an old story that goes back to the Renaissance, which is you, know, you get other people fight for you. Uh, the Russians do, they're using Chechens, you know, and other kind of mercenaries, and we're doing the same thing. We're, you know, we're very happy for other people to fight. Brave Ukrainians you know, are, are really good at fighting, and, and we'll watch them on TV. You know, and, and we'll make collections for them, and we'll do all that kind of stuff. We'll be the, the voyeurs, while somewhere else the action is kind of gradually uh, sort of unfolding. Now it seems to me that we have no choice but to defend Ukraine. And we have to defend Ukraine not just rhetorically, and we have to defend Ukraine not just simply by providing them material support. I mean, all those things are really quite important. I do think that at some point in time, you have to recognize that Ukraine isn't just a country that's just been invaded. It isn't just a country that's facing a mass army that's going to go, that's not going to stop anytime soon. Ukraine is the only country in that part of the world which is large enough and substantial enough and has got the military capability to actually at least slow down the invasion from Russia. It is the classic buffer zone between Russia and everything else to, to the west of that. <coughs> if Ukraine goes, if Ukraine is occupied, then the security of every country in the Baltic, the security of Poland and other Eastern European countries are all going to be put at risk. And it's going to be put at risk not just simply because Russia necessarily wants to invade those countries, but because, and this is where the real danger lies, Russia is so unstable internally 
so unstable internally that anything can happen when things blow up. You already saw what happened in Kazakhstan. You already saw uh, what happened in Belarus. You, already, you can already see that Russia is, is, a, is a, a disaster area waiting to happen. So quite important to realize this. And, and it seems to me that under those circumstances, we do need to think about lending Ukraine far greater military support than merely providing them with, with kind of anti-tank guns and various missiles that, that they, they have received. Myself, you know, after thinking about this for some time, I've come to the conclusion that we can no longer say in black and white terms that we're not going to have, uh, we're not going to try to seek to establish a no-fly zone. Because if we do that, what we're saying is that the threat of a, of a, of a nuclear retaliation by Russia, that threat will paralyze us from doing anything effective. And obviously, we need to be very careful and we need to think about this. And I'm not arguing that we should just simply and mindlessly get stuck in. But I was horrified when the Americans prevented the Polish people from sending airplanes to Ukraine. That could have been the first step towards uh, maintaining and defending the sovereign airspace of the Ukraine. I also think that it's a legitimate aspiration to perhaps set up a, a, a limited no-fly zone that protects the humanitarian corridors. So basically what we're saying is that that area, or the humanitarian area, should also be sort of kind of protected. But any case, the point I'm trying to make is, you know, I'm not a military tactician, and I know there are people who know far more than I do about this, but the one thing I do need, do, do think, is that we need to have a form of deter deterrence that is far more robust than the, the one we have at the moment. Because unless we have a more robust form of deterrence, then in a sense we become hostages to the fear of a nuclear attack by Russia. And once people know that throughout the world, then it's only a matter of time before China goes into Taiwan, and it's only a matter of time before other predatory forces feel un you know, uninhibited about moving on and, and, and doing bad things to other parts of the world. Our job, I think, at the moment uh, is to, in a sense, support Ukraine in, in whatever form we can possibly can, but we also have another job, which here, in, domest in domestically, in Britain and America, we have to remind our elites of their responsibility to be leaders, rather than just merely you know, sort of passive voyeurs of what's really happening. We have to have an intellectual and a moral revolution in our country, where we are reminded of the fact that rather than allowing this process of moral disarmament to continue, we have to rearm ourselves morally in the first instance. That's a prelude to being effective in any decision that we might take in the future. And that's something that all of you in this room can participate in. You don't need to be a soldier. You don't need to be rich. We all have the capacity for moral reasoning and for taking our legacy and our past sufficiently seriously to take a stand against evil. Thank you. So the, there's a lot to unpack there, Joan, but just, just your kind of initial thoughts, either on what Frank said, but what you've been thinking about as well for the, the last few days. Just. Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, well, that's the first time I'm hearing a lot of that stuff from Frank, and it's, um, 
yeah, there is a lot to um, unpack there. I mean, I do agree with Frank's first point that, I mean, I often find myself thinking this, that we do live in this kind of tabula rasa sort of society, um, you know, which we're always in the present. The past is this black hole. Um, and I think it's important to discuss, you know, how we've got here and, 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 and why that is. I think the key point is that a society which has lost its belief in its capacity to progress uh, to, in the future, uh, a society that has lost touch with the sort of values that Frank was talking about um, and with tradition, and a society which ultimately believes that the problems are insoluble you know, society actually that's given up on human agency actually ceases to concern itself with the past. And that's kind of, that's where we are now. So I think it is, history is very important. Um, and um, we need to, if we want to understand what's happening now in, right now in, in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, what, Russia is doing and what its motivations are and how it's likely to respond. We really do need to understand um, how we got here. Um, so just that's just a, just a, a you know first reaction to um, to Frank's point. Um, I mean the first point that I want to make is that I agree absolutely with Frank that Russia's war in Ukraine is an abomination. A national leader who feels that they have been forced into a corner, as Vladimir Putin obviously feels that he has as a result of uh, NATO Western diplomacy over the past 30 years, um, still has choices. And the choice that Putin has made is an immoral and indefensible one. And in fact, Russia lost the moral high ground insofar as it had any when it annexed, I mean, on the principle of national sovereignty, uh, Tim, it lost that in 2014 when it annexed um, uh, uh, Crimea and abandoned the principle of non-intervention and national sovereignty, which previously it had insisted upon in response to the NATO bombing uh, of uh, the, of uh, Serbia and Montenegro over Kosovo in 1999, which was, I guess, for Russia as well, its moment of greatest humiliation, uh, an unprovoked war of aggression by NATO against a sovereign country without any UN authorization. So Russia uh, surrendered any kind of moral um, authority on that point when it went into Ukraine already in, in 2014. I mean, that is not to let NATO um, off the hook. By any measure, this catastrophe in Ukraine does represent a massive failure of Western diplomacy over many decades. Um, we probably haven't, I haven't got probably time now well, to little, talk about um, how we got here. And I think if we look at how we did get here, um, we can look at proximate causes, near-term causes, um, you know, such as the 
which were underestimated probably by, on the Western side, the breakdown of the Minsk process, um, you know, which the Russians were very aggrieved about, came to believe that France and Germany were basically um, taking Ukraine's side and not um, uh, uh, putting pressure on them to implement uh, key parts of that. Obviously, the Minsk agreement is completely unacceptable to any government in Ukraine and would be <laughs> the end of any government which accepted that, basically, through the constitution, um, allowing some measure of, quite a large measure of autonomy and self-rule uh, for Donetsk and Luhansk, um, a sort of Trojan horse. That was always the aim of Russia, a Trojan horse in Ukraine that would mean that uh, Ukraine would never be fully in control of its destiny and, uh, and would be divided and Russia would have a say in it, its future. But that was one thing. But it was more than Minsk in the, uh, what happened last year in 2021. Obviously, Russia increasingly feeling that NATO was encroaching uh, right up to its border. Ukraine became, well, the biggest recipient of uh, US military aid in the world more or less in 2021. Um, NATO was conducting all sorts of um, exercises, military um, exercises, nucle uh, carrying nuclear weapons right up to Russia's border. So a lot of things were going on. Um, the um, reactivation of this base in Mainz Castell in Germany, which really alarmed the Russians with this hypersonic Dark Eagle missile. So there's a whole a lot of things happening in the near, near term. Um, but obviously the issues go much deeper than that. And obviously the biggest issue for Russia over very many years was the question of NATO enlargement um, and the sighting of um, NATO missile defense systems in new NATO member states in uh, Poland and uh, Romania and, and so on. And, uh, you know, this has been the constant kind of refrain and list of grievances and resentment that we hear, we've heard now for decades coming from Putin, uh, that this was a betrayal, that promises that were made, and they were made, though they never entered into any legal treaty or agreement, um, that this wouldn't happen, um, that NATO would not enlarge um, uh, into um, uh, what... Russia sees as its backyard, that they would not cite missile defence systems there. Well, it, obviously, it all happened in successive waves, with the most latest round of enlargement happening in 2021 when North Macedonia joined. Um, so that was the, um, uh, that's the kind of background. There were many, many other issues as well. Um, you know, breakdown of talks on, on nuclear uh, treaties and disarmament. I mentioned the, the Kosovo thing. So that's how we um, got here. And um, I think probably in the discussion, we want to talk about a bit more about what it means. Um, I do think, you know, what we're heading towards is a new division of Europe with a line drawn further in the east. Um, regardless of what the outcome of this war is, and even if Russia is pushed back um, to, uh, to the east and suffers major reversals, it's certainly not going to be welcomed back into the international system and the Western club anytime soon. I think that this is certainly going to um, uh, drive 
Russia into the arms of China. <clears throat> I think there's a real underestimation of how far that strategic partnership has gone. You know, it's not just something that's happened overnight. Russia pivoted east already in, in 2012, had probably drawn the conclusion at that stage that there was nothing for it in terms of security, any kind of security guarantees in Europe, and probably also not much economic future um, either. Um, so that's certainly going to happen. I think the US, in terms of its pivot to Asia, is going to have its hands full in Europe. Um, and so the whole idea of containment of China and building this counterbalancing alliance is um, going to be delayed to some extent. There's many, many other consequences. I think the balance of power in Europe is going to shift. You know, German, we've seen what's been happening in Germany uh, recently. Uh, we'll see whether Germany feels that it's able to play a more central role in determining the security um, and defence issues in, in Europe, and if it does so, um, that will begin to um, shift the balance of forces within Europe. I think for Europe, this is a massive wake-up call. Um, and, you know, when I was, I was in Bulgaria just before the war broke out, um, I was listening to a lot of European politicians. They were all saying the same thing. This was when the build-up was going on and the talks were taking place. What they were all saying was, how, how can we allow Russia and the US to determine what happens on our continent. Um, so this whole idea of um, uh, sovereignty for, for, for Europe and um, autonomy is, um, is going to obviously come into its own uh, more. There's quite a lot of other things. The arms race is going to take off in a very serious way now. Uh, but maybe we can come back to those in, in the discussion. On the no-fly zone, I, I do disagree with Frank, but maybe we can come back to that, and maybe there's other better ways. The first thing, you, if you want a no-fly zone, the first thing you have to do is go to Russia and destroy their bases um, um, in, in, in Russia before you can even start to do anything. So it's um, maybe not the best way forward. Yes, Frank and I have had a, a slight disagreement on the no-fly zone question, um, but um, but actually that was really really helpful, Joan. And there's loads of things to come back on, and and we will do. But for now, just your thoughts, Tim. Can you all hear me through this? Yes. First of all, sorry, Joan. At, at one point, I wasn't scoughing something you said. I, I was coughing. No, I was coughing. <laughs> I, I, I ate a flapjack this morning, and I think part of it is stuck in my throat because uh, I keep coughing. Uh, just to pick up, first of all, on a couple of things that Frank said. Uh, first of all, uh, I like your point about uh, how expertise has switched from, uh, from virology to war. Um, but I, I think it's more than that. I think there's been a transference of psychology. Uh, I, I think I have felt mobilized in the last two and a half years, and I feel <laughs> mobilized again. It's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. I'm just saying I think that a population which has been uh, encouraged to be worried uh, it's, very, it's very easy for that population to then transfer those fears and that mobilisation to a different kind of threat. Um, secondly, uh, on the point about uh, history didn't stop, uh, this is so true, uh, and the West is so incredibly lucky, and that luck breeds a certain decadence and myopia. Of course, even in the 1990s, which we, rem which we remember uh, largely, uh, for Bill Clinton's sex life and the sitcom Friends. Uh, the rest of the world had Rwanda to deal with. It had Serbia to deal with. Uh, it had nationalism and, of course, the, the emergence of religious fundamentalism, which
which the West simply didn't treat seriously enough until 9-11. And even today, there is still, as I say, this myopia in, in the West's approach towards the rest of the world that not only gets the outside world wrong, but doesn't notice our own involvement in it. Uh, today, I saw MPs discussing the 81 executions which have occurred in Saudi Arabia, which is horrific, don't get me wrong. I, I, it's appalling, and I hope Britain does more than just have a strong word with its friend. Um, but, of course, the West carries out drone strikes. There's no judicial procedure in those, I can assure you. And we have killed innocents in the course of doing that. The West also executes people. Um, and then, finally, on the question of values, duty, patriotism, I'm going to come back to that at the end. I will simply signpost at this point uh, that I personally feel strong attachment to those values. Uh, in part, I have sort of bought into them by becoming a Catholic. Um, but I also feel some ambivalence about them. And actually, I think the more seriously you take those values, uh, the more right it is to be uh, questioning of them uh, and to feel, as I say, some degree of ambivalence. With regards to what's happened with Russia and, and, and Ukraine, one thing I want to say from the outset for the avoidance of all doubt is that uh, Vladimir Putin is wicked and his invasion of Ukraine is evil. Um, I'm saying that because uh, I want to be able to speak freely and I may sometimes say things which are not popular at the moment, but I want to make it absolutely clear where I do stand. Uh, there are some of my friends on the traditional, traditionalist right who do not feel the same way, and I have been surprised and on some occasions disappointed by that. Uh, Tucker Carlson is an example. Uh, Tucker Carlson does not endorse the invasion, of course, but feels the West should have nothing to do with it. And you can always tell when Tucker has intellectually overreached because he starts to laugh like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Just watch his programs. He'll start to go, aha, aha. So he does. It's very strange. Um, it's also important to stress that uh, what we see happening in Russia... Uh, is not necessarily Russianness. I don't think we should accept that. We are seeing a singular will play out, a dictator uh, who is at present enjoying the run of being able to define what Russia is and what its strategic interests are, but really, really it's an articulation of Vladimir Putin's interests and his own personal take on Russian history. Let's not confuse the dictatorship with Russia itself. There have been many different Putins, from the Putin of the Soviet era, to the Putin of the business oligarch era of the 90s, to the populist Putin of the 2000s, and now this new nationalist Putin who has decided that he is going to revive ancient Rus, that Ukraine does not exist, etc., etc. So this Putin is himself a phantasm. And he is most definitely not Russia, which is not only a, a wonderful civilization and culture, but also a culture which, if you know it, you will appreciate has a, a, a long tradition of dissent and opposition to the state. Um, and it's, again, critical not to assume there's a, the tendency in Western coverage of all Asiatic policy, politics to assume that it is a land of followers, uh, that it is a, a land of people who naturally are collectivists, naturally just obey the leader and the boss and follow along. Well, that's not true. Um, and, I, and I would add as well that uh, I personally strongly dislike seeing footage of Rus Russian soldiers being paraded across TikTok uh, because those young men are victims as well. Uh, most of them are conscripts. The Russian army is awful and it seems, if Western intelligence is correct, that they were lied to about the invasion. So they don't even necessarily know what they're doing there. So let's please stop seeing their faces because it's not fair. It's, it's not fair. Uh, one of the problems, one of the reasons why this has happened, <clears throat> why this has been allowed to happen, is because the West uh, lives in a sort of fantastical bubble. Uh, it lies about itself, and it lies about the outside world. And at the heart of this fantasy uh, is the West's uh, conviction 
or the conviction of much of the West uh, in the Enlightenment project, or at least a mutated, deformed version of the Enlightenment project, which has been pushed to a very strange sort of postmodernist extreme. And I don't have time to acknowledge all the nuances and the caveats, but in essence, it is the idea uh, that man is born with various cultural inheritances that hold him back and which twist his nature. And that if only you could strip those things away and get back to the real natural man, therein lies progress, which will end at democracy and freedom and the end of poverty and sickness. Um, now, in the course of telling this story about itself, the West, as I say, tells lies about itself. It tells itself that it has conquered religion and nationalism. It hasn't at all. Uh, if an alien came down and studied Western society, he would listen to Greta Thunberg and assume she was the, the new messiah. <laughs> we do religion. We've just transferred, the, transferred that religion away from the church and towards other things instead. We are still a very religious people. And as for nationalism, I think we still do nationalism as well. We just articulate it in a slightly different way, whether it be voting, through voting for Brexit, which was in part about a reassertion of national sovereignty, or indeed the kind of European nationalism which I sense emerging from this crisis, a new sense of European identity. Why is it uh, that the West has been so exercised about Ukraine? It's because it's on Europe's doorstep. There's no escaping that. This is not a value judgment to say that. In fact, it upsets me to think that we, are, we were not quite as concerned about Yemenis and Syrians. I think that's tragic. But there's no escaping that there is a sort of nat European national identity which is emerging from this crisis. So we tell these stories about ourselves, but worse than that, we transfer them to the rest of the world. And we assume that what the rest of the world wants is what we want. A uh, quick example of this is, uh, it, it, if you look at the work of Jonathan Haidt, he points out that Europeans have an assumption that uh, everybody the world over wants the same thing, which is personal freedom, and that everyone the world over regards culture as relative. So that people in the West, kids in the West, when, will, when interviewed, will say things like, well, my family believes X, but I don't expect everyone else to believe it. And the Westerners have, have assumed that this is how the entire world thinks. And Haight points out that if you actually go and talk to Indians and Pakistanis, he provides data to show this, you'll find they don't think that. They think that their cultural values are universal, or ought to be, that it ought not to be right to eat a cow, or that it ought not to be right to be seen naked. And when you look at that, you realize that actually, our assumption that we are value-free or that values are mutable is itself a value, is itself an expression of Western identity. So we transfer our own sense of Westernness onto the Russians, and we look at them and we think, what do they really want? They're saying all this stuff about Ukraine and ancient Russia. What do they really want? They want a democracy and they want to be rich. And that's the way we proceeded in dealing with them for the last 30 years. And the reality is that's not necessarily what they want, or at least not what its leadership wants. And therefore, we've been having a false argument. Vladimir Putin signaled his view of the world last year in an essay in which he explained precisely what he thought of Ukraine and what he intended to do with it. And people, including myself, did not take the essay seriously because it seemed so batshit crazy. <laughs> and we thought, that's not a very Western way of thinking. It must be propaganda. It, it must be, uh, he must be making it up. It must be, a, must be a pretext to something else that he wants that we can give him. And then it turns out that actually, no, all along, he does think large parts of Ukraine are Russia, and he is determined to reunite them. And unlike us, one thing that does tend to unite the Asiatic countries is they tend to think and to plan in decades, whereas we think and plan in terms of electoral cycles. And therefore, they stay one step ahead of us. Nationalism is a reality, and religion is a reality. It's happened in the case of Ukraine. Russia has, a, or Putin has, a nationalist vision. He's trying to reunite. 
And equally, the Ukrainians have a nationalist vision too. In fact, ironically, Russian aggression may well be the thing that creates a coherent Ukrainian nation, the invader coming from outside. Because prior to that, it was a very divided, very corrupt country. But once you are attacked, you gain a sense of yourself. And it's interesting also that parts of the country which were sort of nicked or occupied in 2014 uh, by, the, by the Russians uh, or the Russian separatists have turned out to be some of the strongest re resistance uh, of Russian aggression this time around. People who a decade ago might have been sympathetic to Moscow, having actually experienced Russian fascism, <coughs> now are very, very critical of it. So there is this reality of nationalism and religion, and that, I think, is what we've been reminded of in the last year. And as if looking in a mirror darkly, we see it reflected back upon ourselves. The warrior ethos uh, is still there. I don't know if Frank was saying it's gone or not, but it is still there. Um, it, it is still there. And it, it erupts in the irony of people who on Twitter a year ago wouldn't leave their house for fear of dying from a virus. Now saying that they are ready to fight. <laughs> they are ready to fight. Well, in that case, as I said at the beginning, uh, I am ambivalent about those values. Because whilst the warrior is indeed a virtuous thing, uh, I loathe war. Uh, and if this, does, uh, if this does snowball into something large and dramatic, it may seem counterintuitive, but some of the bravest people will be the people saying stop. Thank you. all that because we haven't got time I need the audience but just a couple of points you want to pick up Frank yeah I, I, I mean two very interesting com uh, points that were made uh, a number of things I disagree with I'm not going to go into a lot uh, a lot of them except that you know the way that I see history is a little bit different than perhaps uh, Tim has kind of looked at it because it seems to me that history doesn't mean it's not about saying that things have always that were in the that, that were there in the past are now here in the present and have the same kind of meaning as they would have had previously. Mm. So, for example, I think that one of the interesting things about what's going on is that, contrary to appearances, nationalism is actually very feeble at the moment, and you can see that even within Russia itself, where although uh, probably the majority of Russians you know support Putin's. Uh, war for a variety of reasons, the actual enthusiasm for getting stuck in and fighting and uh, is not very uh, sort of strong. And we have a lot of reports, for example, from Russia of, uh, of essentially forcing people uh, to join the army. And uh, you know, the very fact that they're using uh, sort of raw uh, sort of re recruits to fight a lot of the, these battles indicates that there is a kind of uh, pressure from above rather than enthusiasm from below. This is not like the French Revolution when people went out and joined and, and their enthusiasm carried the revolution to large parts of Europe. There, there isn't that kind of... And that's the case, I think, everywhere. I think that you know, what you have in Germany or in Britain or in France is a conspicuously small number of people who really, who really think that fighting is really what it's all about or want to go and fight. Most people are really switched off from this. So it's in this context that I talk about the war ethos, not because I want to celebrate it or think that it's uh, some, something that is superior to other kind of ethoses, but the nation is <coughs> somehow uh, devoid of that. And if we, uh, you know, if we live in a, a country like England or Britain, where in many places in the southeast where there are large army barracks, the soldiers are told not to walk around in their uniforms. 
because they will get beaten up or they will people make fun of them. You know, then what you have is almost the opposite of what a warrior ethos is. I haven't got a name for that. But it, it does indicate a certain kind of problem that kind of we're kind of confronted with. Uh, and it seems to me it, it's, uh, it's important to realize, just one final word. I, whatever we think about Russia, it's, I think it's wrong to personalize it on Putin to the extent that we're doing, that this is Putin's war, that he's this mad yeah, or single-minded individual. There's different interpretations of, of him being almost single-handedly responsible for what is going on. I don't want to, in any sense, uh, <coughs> minimize his role in this, but we have a, a Russian society that is uh, inherently fragile and weak, <coughs> that is in a very strong defensive mode at the moment. And but there's a certain kind of uh, impulse towards uh, the kind of behavior that we've seen. And if it was just simply Putin, then the problem would end. But as you know, if Putin was replaced by a general or somebody else, I'm afraid that at, at this particular moment in time, you would have uh, somebody in charge with a very similar orientation towards the outside world. Just one, you know, the, one small point on John's point on, on China and Russia. I slightly disagree with her on this. I, th I think that the, the contradictions between China and Russia are quite formidable. Uh, and you know, Russia doesn't want to be a second, you know, the junior partner in this. And China is actually worried about you know, Russian irrational behavior. And they're worried about what's going to happen should uh, Russia fragment further and create instability towards the Asian republics. So I think there's a, there's a lot of tension and conf potential conflict there, which will mean that the rapprochement that exists between these two countries, I don't think will could last for very much longer. Okay, so listen, there's nothing um, more serious, I suppose, in politics than war and peace. And I think that when we talk about these things, um, it's very important to be able to debate them in the spirit of unfettered freedom. Right, and especially when you're trying to get to grips with things that are so difficult, and when there are tendencies all around to close down debates, as we know from all sides, by the way. So that's the first thing. I, I would say that this is um, quite a challenging period, and it's certainly discombobulated people. So a few discombobulations to throw at you that you can kind of come back on me. Um, so here I am, a lefty anti-militarist, right, and I have. Um, anti-interventionist critic of NATO over many years but it has been extraordinary to find that when the West says well what can we do well we can't do anything that it reminds me of there is no alternative we just have to put up with it so it's basically well of course it's terrible that they've invaded Ukraine but what can you do do you know what I mean so well, we, we can't really do much because otherwise it will lead to World War 3 and you think you're meant to be the West you're meant to be NATO, for God's sake, where's that military spirit? I mean, you know, it just feels too open-ended. So there's a tension there that I can't reconcile, which people might want to consider. The other thing is, is that a lot of people I know effectively are very critical of um, the West at the moment. It's kind of like, and you know, in the UK, it just takes the form of anything any British politician does or says you can't believe them, they're all liars, they're all incompetent. And it seems a little bit of that kind of Western self-loathing that some people are familiar with. But somebody said something interesting to me over the weekend. They said, and this is a kind of particular, you know, last two years thing, 
Over the last two years with COVID, the government and the mainstream media broke the social contracts but through the lockdown policies and civil liberties. And for a lot of people, that was a kind of radicalising <clears throat> moment. And prior to that, there was a lot of people who voted leave who also felt that they got a shock. You know, there they were wandering around being voters and then they felt they were completely sold out. They therefore have, at the moment, there's a lot of people who just say, don't believe anything that's coming out of the, net, you know, the government's mouths, don't believe anything I see on the telly. And there's quite a nihilistic cynicism that's developed, which is a peculiar atmosphere to operate in. So I say those things because what I'm saying is it's quite complicated and layered. And also all of our speakers, and uh, particularly Frank Sesse, throw up lots of issues. I'm not asking you to say any of them, but feel free to make your case civilly, listen, and also be prepared to potentially change your mind, because that's the whole point of this. Um, okay, so thank you. So I, I, you had your hand up first. So we'll start there and then I'll come there. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm grateful to Frank for those last comments about this is not just about Putin. And I think, Tim, considering you did a good job at presenting the problems of the West and Western wishful thinking, I think there's an element of wishful thinking in imagining this is Putin's war. That doesn't mean that there's loads of Russians in support. Uh, but for every conscript and potential saboteur, there's also a Z meme activist. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of contradictions going on uh, over there. And I do think we need to be careful. We all know, I believe, that the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand did not, you know, on its own, was not the cause of the First World War which would have happened probably irrespective. And in, in that regard, you know, I just wanted to tease out from the speakers to what extent they think that irrespective of this war, there's a geopolitical shift due. Um, and it, it could be this, you could put a bullet in Putin's head, it may go into abeyance for five years, but the tensions are still there, it remains unresolved. Uh, thanks, Frank, for, um, for that introduction, for getting us thinking, because that's one thing we really need to do at this moment in time, is uh, think carefully about what we're uh, proposing. Uh, my question to you, really, is uh, if the elite is decadent, as you say, why beg them? I mean, why wait for them? Why, why beg them to do something? Why don't we, ourselves, take action and shape the future uh, and, and create history in a human form? Um, I think my values probably differ from yours in terms of what I would advocate. I'd be for democracy, uh, people power and international solidarity action. We don't have to be passive as a public in this historical moment. Uh, thank you. And that lady there. And thank you to the panel. What role do you think the European Union has played in the course of events? It seems to me it's kind of one empire, the European Union, against another former empire, the Soviet Union. So appreciate your thoughts on that, thank you. Uh, yeah, so for me the phrase behind Tim's head on the banner has never been more relevant. Uh, the Battle of Ideas, also great festival, uh, get your tickets on the Battle of Ideas website, uh, has never been more relevant. Uh, it seems like we're having a battle of ideas across the West, perhaps within Russia as well, but then also the forces of West versus East, uh, in a way which certainly hasn't happened uh, to this extent in my lifetime. Uh, being slightly still able to call myself a young man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this feels like the first massive escalation into violence. Uh, 
on this scale close to home that I've experienced. Uh, where does this go? Like, obviously, all the projections of doom and gloom at the moment are about prospective World War Three. Uh, but how do we bridge these gaps, both at home and internationally, without things just escalating worse and worse and worse? Um, my question goes on from the question that was raised over here, really, which is what does international solidarity look like today? And when you're advocating a no-fly zone and the British government, pre presumably, and other Western governments making that happen, um, are you suggesting that that is a sign of that, that that is international solidarity? I'm not really sure about that. And then the other question is, um, you haven't, not, no one's painted a particularly positive picture, and I haven't seen a positive picture really, of opposition in Russia, because international solidarity might imply supporting people in Russia who are challenging the war, for example. Um, and is, is there any, anything to be, show our solidarity with in, in Russia? Um, and then just finally, my daughter said to me the other day, I've just seen, I've just seen someone in their cellar in the Ukraine talking to me, telling me what this war in Ukraine, what it means to her. She says, I'm 17, she's 17, she's talking to me now. Isn't that amazing? You, wouldn't have, you would never have had that before. And she was expressing amazement that she could talk to this girl in Ukraine who's, whose house has been bombed. And obviously, it seems to me there's a lot of censorship taking place in the British media and the Russian media, but there is this um, opportunity or something going on where people, 17-year-old girls can talk to, in London, can talk to a 17-year-old girl in the Ukraine. Just on the solidarity point, just because it means I can make that point now, which is on your seats, we, we put this Blackwell and Darwin with Ukraine. This is a, 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 a speaker from the Battle of Ideas and a, and a a friend of the Academy of Ideas, Rick Moore, who's um, basically taking a van over um, on Friday and is trying to raise some support. And, I, and I'm, I'm not just, so I'm, and we're going to have a collection at the end, right? And if, or if anyone wants to give anything, I'll just use the just giving site. But it's just really to advertise because it's actually, a lot of people have wanted to do something and I wanted to see what the panel thinks, but anyone out there as well, which is having been demobilised under the lockdown circumstances, you know, war against the virus was stay at home, do nothing. And this is a kind of real war, and now actually people are saying, I'm going to do this. So many men with vet, van, man with vans, as it were, going over to Ukraine, but actually it's sort of quite inspiring. And also that's partly the, you know, people saying, I'll have somebody stay with me and all that. You know, before Michael Gove turned it into a bureaucratic nightmare, that kind of come and stay instinct was one of generosity. But is that all, you know, people have said to me, oh, this is just sentimental nonsense, Claire. You know, what are you talking about? Why are you encouraging it? I'm actually very supportive of Rick Moore and the van going and those people who do it. But is that just nonsense? And what do people think about that? I'd be interested. Right, that gentleman there. Yes, Claire, you're, I was amused by your point about, well, 
amused and on a, and a bit disappointed around that whole point. The last two years we've been fighting all the COVID regulatory nonsense, in my opinion. I stopped watching the BBC, I stopped watching Sky, mainstream media, uh, and now, oh well, it's a war, but it's probably not real uh, because COVID was being pursued in a propagandistic way. I think that's a mistake. I think we need to have a dexterity of mind to embrace what is clearly nonsense and understand it for that and then to actually acknowledge what is clearly happening and is very real and I think it's very dangerous for some of the people that certainly uh, I have worked with over the last two years on the Covid issue who now say well this is just an, a continuation of that propaganda. I think that's very, very dangerous. But my point here, my question to put to, to the panel and my concern is around this issue of, well, NATO has encroached on Russia uh, and uh, this is therefore, it's almost, it's explainable why Russia would seek to want to invade Ukraine and do what it is doing. Not excuse it, but it, 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 there is a rationale to it. Uh, but on the other side, what are we saying? I read Lionel Barber in The Spectator today mm -hmm. saying, right, well, we've got to give new, you know, we've got to guarantee that Ukraine will be neutral. Who the hell gives the West the right to tell Ukraine what it should or shouldn't be doing? That, to me, seems wrong. Uh, if Ukraine, as a democratic nation-state, a sovereign country, wants to join NATO, we should let them join NATO. If they want to join the EU, we should let them join the EU. And I'm very concerned that there is this, this as Frank was making the point, you know, this timidity uh, uh, that things are explainable, and I'd be interested in views on that. Thank, Thank you. you. And the person there, yeah. Well, all this talk about the warrior ethos puts me in mind of a discussion 30 years ago uh, in relation to the former Yugoslavia. Uh, many liberal intellectuals bemoaned the weakness, the moral confusion, the risk aversion of the West and wondered why it wasn't intervening more forcefully and robustly in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, one of them even wrote a book called The Warrior's Honor, Michael Ignatiev. He wasn't alone, David Reef, Mary Caldor, there was, there was quite a lot of them. Uh, it struck me as quite a repulsive thing to do. It struck me as kind of parasitic on somebody else's war to try and work out your own moral clarity at home through piggybacking on someone else's fighting and suffering. And, and it was also unsuccessful. It didn't work for them. All it did do, and I fear we may be doing the same, and urging us to intervene, whoever the we may be doing that intervening. All it did do was to hand greater moral authority to uh, Western governments who, over that same 30 years, have done nothing but trash principles of sovereign equality and non-interference and all the rest of it, things that we might like to see defended today. So I'd like to know what's different now. Uh, is this not a very similar discussion and are not the consequences of it likely to be similar. I'm also, um, you know, the, the other thing that strikes me about that is that there was a tendency to frame it in terms of good versus evil. Once you do that, once you frame your enemy uh, as evil, um, well, who are you framing as the good guys here? 
Okay, thanks. So, um, I've sorry. So, Frank, would you like to just very briefly anything you want to pick up? Well, just on that last point. I mean, I was against Western intervention everywhere. Uh, you know, Balkans, Libya, Iraq, Syria. I thought I'm an opponent of an attempt to create regime change or to bring democracy to a particular kind of society. I, th I think the situation in the Ukraine is very different. Uh, and I, I don't think that uh, you kind of want to make a dogma out of non-intervention. Because if you do that, then we lose sight of the fact that there are two important things in play. One is national interest, which is the national interest of most countries in Europe who do not, who do not, who do not want to see the kind of redivision of Europe that's going to be inevitable. And secondly, when you have a large regional superpower invading uh, Ukraine and, and, and in a sense destroying it quite systematically uh, with all, all kinds of untold consequences, then what we need to do is to give whatever support we possibly can. And we do that not because that makes us morally better or because it's a, it's a way that we can solve our own moral confusions because that's not going to occur through uh, such, a, such, a, such an intervention. But we do it simply because uh, it's a way that uh, you know, the, the basic notion of a right of nation to self-determination uh, can be given meaning. Uh, and, and I think that the stakes are very, very different. The world has changed quite dramatically in terms of the balance of power and the threat that Russia represents in the Ukraine is a threat not just to, to the Ukraine but to Russia itself to the uh, possibility of that nation being, uh, in a sense, kind of disintegrating. I think also, just one final point, the worry ethos is not about being you know, very macho and kind of going gung-ho and playing around with rifles. I think it's to do with the fact that we, we take the defense of our community uh, quite seriously and we, we all assume a certain degree of responsibility for the welfare and security of the environment that we live in, and we don't outsource that. We don't outsource that to, you know, sort of experts or outsource that to mercenaries or, you know, things of, of that nature. And that's something that, you know, historically uh, has been so important because every society that relied on outsourcing its defence to mercenaries always uh, ended up in a very bad spot. Okay, thanks, Tim. Anything you want to pick up? Yes. First of all, thank you very much for that point about dexterity of mind. I thought that was a very good way of putting it. And I've been concerned that there have been some people who have uh, sort of decided that because the government may or may, may or may not have been wrong about one thing, it's not only wrong about the other thing, but it's lying about it. Never dismiss, by the way, the possibility of there being an economic decision behind that. But there are some people who have made a lot of money out of COVID scepticism. Uh, and it kind of keeps the, it keeps the thing rolling to move on to the next thing. Um, as regards uh, the, the, the issue of NATO expansion, uh, I do feel that we have mishandled Russia in the last 30 years. I don't, feeling that way doesn't mean, however, that because Russia has then uh, turned uh, on the West or upon Ukraine doesn't mean that you, you don't oppose it. Sure, I feel we have baited the bear, but once the bear attacks you, you respond to the bear. You don't go, fair enough, I was baiting you for a long time. <laughs> uh, you, you take a stand against it. On the question of solidarity, uh, well, the government has called our bluff uh, in a wonderfully Tory scheme. They have privatised compassion. Uh, by saying, rather than local governments looking after, local councils looking after people, you can do it if you feel that strongly about it. 
and will even pay you £350 a month to do it. And as I saw MPs discussing it in the Commons today, I looked around at all these, all these faces of MPs suddenly realising, oh, I'm going to have to do this now. Because <laughs> <laughs> if I don't, I'll get cancelled on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> finally, uh, on the, the point about uh, the Archduke, uh, what is it? What is the thing that's going to cause the cataclysm? Well, I hope there won't be a cataclysm. But it, not, it, it, Russia isn't the only problem in play right now. It could have been Russia and Ukraine. It could have been Iran getting the bomb. It could have been China invading Taiwan. There are a number of sort of post-Cold War problems that we've not solved. And one way, one thing we're going to have to do is unknit globalization. Uh, because it means it makes it, it limits our room for manoeuvre for dealing with them. Oh, and finally, very quickly, on the point about Putin, do I, no, no, no I, of course there'll be Russians who agree with Putin. Uh, my point, part of my point is that it's hard to tell. You cannot trust a dictator's word uh, under a dictatorship that he speaks for his country. You just can't rely on it. And my, my more sort of uh, emotional point is I know so many Russians in this country, uh, some of whom have fled uh, Russia, uh, fled Putin, uh, and I, I really regret greatly uh, the, the, uh, this, this tide of this feeling of Russophobia in Britain. Russia and Putin are not synonymous, and I really want to hammer that message home. OK, thank you. Um, right, so, Joe. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, just to respond to a few points. Um, on uh, the question about opposition in Russia, I, I think the mistake that people always make about Russia is to think that Russians are like us and think in the same way and that we can just project, you know, our own sensibilities onto uh, that country, which for reasons of um, history um, and national identity and all sorts of other things, um, you know, people do not see the world in the same way that we do. Um, and I'm afraid that the, um, there's some very brave people who've been coming out and protesting against this war in Russia, very brave to do it because the level now of um, uh, police terror um, against those who do it is extreme. Um, uh, you don't get any chances anymore. You're certainly going to get a beating and you're certainly going to end up in prison. And if you do something else, you, you can get 15 years in prison. So the people who are, and it's striking how many across many cities, you know, are very brave indeed, but I'm afraid that they are a very small minority, just as all those protests and Navalny ones and so on in recent years have been uh, uh, very small. Um, so the majority of people outside of the middle classes who live in the major cities are exposed to state propaganda and state television. That is, they, they don't have access to social media and they don't have access to it. Nobody has access to it anymore in Russia. Um, and, you know, this is for them, this is, their, this is how it is. You know, isolated again, the whole world um, against them. Um, and it does take a lot for Russians to you know, rise up and protest. But having said that, the miscalculation of, of, of Putin, the reason why so many people did not predict this was because Putin knew um, and the elite knew that this would be a very unpopular war. Um, and so there was no preparation for it in terms of the domestic audience at all, as there was before in, in 2014, <coughs> before Crimea. Um, it's unpopular for various reasons. I mean, Putin himself is much less popular now 
than he was then. Um, you know, just want to look at what um, happened to the Russian economy uh, since then. Many Russians have family in Ukraine. Um, so many families are actually divided. They have people on both sides, in Ukraine and in Russia. Um, they don't want their um, uh, sons or brothers going off to fight in Ukraine and to be cannon fodder in this uh, really brutal uh, war. Um, and, you know, fatal surprises are what wars are all about and miscalculations. The leaders who un lead their countries into war make fatal um, mistakes. And the outcome is never what they imagined it to be uh, when they started, started out. The, it seems pretty clear to me that Putin thought that this could be done and dusted. And, many, and that rested on many miscalculations and underestimation of the degree to which a sense of national identity in Ukraine has actually, for the first time ever, um, come into being since 2014, actually in a very short period of time. Ukraine is not a democracy. Ukraine is a completely corrupt oligarchic system, an bas economic basket case. All these people who say, you know, Putin did this because he's seen this flowering of democracy and economic success next door. What a nonsense. Um, he did this because he thought you, uh, Zelensky was weak, which he was very unpopular before this war. This war has been the making of him. Um, in big trouble, actually, under threat from other political interests in the country, oligarchs of various uh, sorts. He thought a comedian, somebody who's very unpopular, and the West is weak, you know, Joe Biden's in power, they pulled out of Afghanistan. So why did he do this now? I think was a, the, there was a miscalculation there primarily about Ukraine. Um, more than the West, which signalled it wasn't going to fight at all. So um, I, I, I think that this war is going to exact a very high price in, in Russia and the sanctions. I mean, the sanctions that are in place now are of a different order than anything that occurred in 2014, the most important one being the effective sequestration of the um, international reserves of the Central Bank of Russia um, and their rainy day fund, sovereign wealth fund. Okay, thanks. Right, I'm going to take two more rounds of questions and there's a million people want to speak. All right, so hi everyone. Uh, my name is Fernando and I came here today to share my story with you. I was born in Lisbon. I'm the son of a Portuguese father and a Russian mother. My uncle Nikolai lives in Ukraine, the region of Donbass in a small town called Alchevsk. He's 63, born in Ukraine, married to a Ukrainian-speaking wife, but his first language is Russian. Nikolai and his family over the last eight years have suffered from horrible atrocities committed by the Ukrainian government and by far-right nationalist battalions such as the Azov Battalion, things that the Western media completely fails to address. It all started in 2014 when the Ukrainian government started closing Russian-speaking schools and Orthodox churches, prohibited Russian language from institutions. Russian cultural events such as the Victory Day were shut down Pensions stopped being paid to citizens of native Russian-speaking regions. And more importantly, native Russian speakers that opposed these measures were met with prosecution, violence, and even murder. 
The Ukrainian government for eight years has bombed native Russian-speaking regions that opposed their discrimination, leading to thousands of deaths of innocent children, elderly people, and citizens whose only interest was to speak their native language and practice their traditions. If Ukraine claims to be a Western democracy, why for all this time their non-democratically elected government has failed to represent the needs of native Russian speakers that account to at least over 5 million people? Thank you very much. I just wanted to say something on that, again to the panel and everyone, because we can't resolve everything tonight. But you made a joke, Frank, about everyone's become a Ukraine specialist. And it, it is important that people know what's going on. It was very, that was an interesting contribution that gentleman made. Um, and it, um, also Joan, when she was just uh, speaking herself, also made some points about Ukraine not being this kind of lovely little happy uh, democracy where you kind of set it up in that way. But is that what, but that, when then you wrote that essay that we kind of inspired this event, it's not about the internal stuff on Ukraine at all. There's nothing wrong with knowing all that. But it, do, we, do we understand it through that? And I, I wanted to just reflect, you're not yet, it's in first, and then you. Right, um, yeah. Anyway, that's it. Um, Frank made a lot of points about uh, what's happened in the West, and uh, I agree with many of them. I get concerned when we talk about things like a buffer zone and we have to have a deterrent and we have no alternative. Firstly, who's the we? And if you want to rekindle and resuscitate things like commitment, uh, duty, service, loyalty even, surely they can be to principles and to a nation state that advocates peaceful resolution, diplomacy, shines a light for its citizens to, to take its leaders to task to stand in solidarity with citizens in Ukraine and with citizens in Russia against their uh, leaders and surely saying that we have no, no alternative but this sounds a bit like a domino theory of the Cold War right next here and then the China as though somehow we and are you saying that the, now everyone should unite around kind of leaders to stop the end of democratic countries it's, it's a bit like I think there's different interests here and I think that the idea of all these dominoes going down there is dangerous and also could help uh, amplify the, the issues that all speakers have said about, which is like increased militarism and, and can take a dynamic that you're worried, you're saying you're concerned about happening, but actually can exacerbate it. And surely there's a sense of responsibility that we can challenge our own leaders and inspire others in their countries to do the same. And perhaps it's low horizons to think not. And I wouldn't... I think that advocating the militarisation of the region even further is very dangerous. Okay, thank you very much. So that ge gentleman there, yeah. Hi Claire, just as a fellow Brexiteer, love your work. <laughs> so you, Tim, were saying what do Indians and Pakistanis think? Well, you've got more than one. I'm Pakistani, born in Scotland, live in England. Um, I see a very free discussion. I don't see a debate. Putin's bad and evil. We're good. And I think it's pantomime politics, frankly. I think we're in danger of really simplifying things. And we need to really look at ourselves, because what I see is colonialism, Western exceptionalism, and racism. And that's the truth. Trudeau can trample horses, mounted police on his protesters, and no one word of condemnation from any leaders. Money is frozen from those who donated to the Freedom Convoy truckers, and there's nothing said in the Western political world. We, in the last two years, have been victims of our governments and our leaders. 
Our rights have been stripped away from us and are continued to be stripped away from us. But hey, let's move away from the COVID narrative and look at the bad person, Putin. That gentleman spoke some things that really need to be looked at. The Azov Brigade, what's happening in Donbass. If Russia sent a politician to Ireland, Sinn Féin started instigating trouble, handing out cookies to the protesters, and try and cause trouble between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And then the Russians said, yes, the British think it's their backyard. Who do they think they are? Of course it's our backyard. And of course Ukraine is their backyard. If you, if we had lost 30 million people, like the Russians did in the Second World War, they would be very sensitive to neo-Nazism, to people encroaching on their borders. So what I would ask you is, rather than having a framed discussion, a lot of eloquent, articulate discussions about the nuances of this and that, but ultimately, Putin's a crazy person. Very dangerous talk. He's not. And I'm not standing by Putin. I'm not standing by Ukraine. I'm standing for humanity. We need to have a grown-up discussion and look at ourselves and see what we are doing wrong, because that's not what's being talked about. Um, right, so, yes. Um, yeah, I'm going to be in Warsaw this week, and um, we've been organising a series of debates. Um, the one that's coming up on Thursday is called The Sacred and the Profane. Quick plug there, um, in the museum. Um, we programmed this event well before the invasion of Ukraine, but now the, the, the spectre of this is uh, haunting our debate, and will be, uh, uh, the more I read around it, you know, it's, it's starting to um, have a greater resonance for me, uh, and that is about... Putin's words about the, the, the spiritual war that he is um, uh, instigating. Uh, it seems not so dissimilar from uh, Islamism, in my opinion, my personal opinion. I mean, uh, he talks about Jerusalem as, uh, sorry, uh, Ukraine uh, and Kiev particularly as, as his Jerusalem, as Russia's Jerusalem. So we, we've, we haven't really spoken about religion, the role of religion in, 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 in this um, uh, war. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church, certainly the leadership, you know, is, is almost the religious um, uh, vision for, 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 for Putin. That's what it seems like to me. Um, of course, there are priests within the Russian Orthodox Church who are protesting and objecting and distancing themselves from that. But the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church is not. They are very much shoulder-to-shoulder uh, uh, -shoulder with Putin. Um, so so the this, this spiritual dimension that Putin is using in his language, in his metaphors, in his rhetoric. Um, what, what, what do you think about that? And then what do we do in the West where we are this secularist, maybe slightly fabulous um, kind of um, uh, 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 culture? Um, so that's the question I just want to throw out there. One brief comment, two questions for the panel or anyone else, and one for uh, our Russian friend here. Uh, the comment um, just struck by, all right, uh, just struck by Frank's comment about historical amnesia. The number of times I've heard on the radio, on TV, people talking about this is the first war in Europe for 70 years, as though former Yugoslavia in the 1990s are somehow being airbrushed out of Europe. That seems to be the perfect illustration of what you're talking about, historical amnesia. Um, two questions. One, uh, what kind of settlement does the West offer Russia that can, you know, whether it's a Putin Russia or post-Putin Russia, that can bring some kind of end game to this, 
What kind of settlement would that look like? Secondly, uh, what's the role of China? Should China be a mediator? Could China be a mediator? Would that be a good thing? And to, to uh, our friend over here, simply, what would you like to happen now? Yeah, Frank, I, I, I keep what Claire said at the start about this is like work in progress and working things out, we're thinking out loud, and I think that's a really good point. Can I ask you a cheeky question about all of your theoretical work over the last 30 or 40 years? It's about, it's about two things. You, you've really developed this brilliant politics around rescuing the subject agency, and you're using some of that now when we're trying to talk about Ukraine and the idea we must not be paralysed, we must not just say there's not, nothing you can do. And it's very interesting. Then the other side of the work is what you might call in old-fashioned words anti-imperialism, that we're against state intervention, and we've always been against it in Iraq, in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Serbia, etc. And my question is, do you see, you're probably going to say no, but I'll think out loud and ask it, do you see a tension between those two elements of your work? Because the way that you presented it today, I understand completely why you might say no fly zones, etc. But then you do have to ask the question, who's the way who's going to do that? And that's going to be the Brits, that's going to be NATO, that's going to be the very countries that bombed all of these other people. And it's not about looking in the past, it's once you give those the legitimacy to intervene in that situation, what happens next year or the year after? Do we effectively give up on that... I think very honourable tradition that we have built of anti-imperialism and, and been against the intervention. Now my problem is this, I, I sound old-fashioned, I'm obviously, obviously Irish and I'm a great believer in James Connolly. had a big banner outside the Hall during the First World War I said we, say, we serve neither King nor Kaiser and in my old-fashioned way I stick to that and I also, also say neither Washington nor Moscow or London but I accept that that can become dogma, it has to be worked at. And I'm wondering, is there anybody who can help me, like you, Frank, where we can maybe work through our anti-imperialism, our opposition to interventionism. And I think if we did that, that wouldn't take us to support the potential of a no-fly zone in Ukraine, because the people who say something must be done, it's tragic. My heart's with Ukrainian people, but I am one of those people who think there's not a lot we can actually do right now in that situation. Um, thanks, Matt. Um, so I found the interesting uh, evening really interesting and really, really depressing. Um, so whether it's Frank's broad sweep of history or Joan, these steps, why is it depressing? Because it feels like this was something that was hiding in plain sight. And the reason I use that expression, as I'm just going to draw a parallel, I'm going to come back to the point around economics, is that financial crisis, a lot of that was hidden, whereas this feels like it was pretty obvious. So the other reason it's pressing, everybody's focused on militarism, nationhood, culture, values. Nobody's talked about money. James mentioned it a little bit. I think the uh, freezing of uh, Russian central bank assets is a massive, massive thing. The one thing the West has, we don't have values, we don't have the balls to fight, but we do have the Western financial system. So the simple question is, can that really be the tool to affect, not regime change, but that's, I think, our strongest weapon. Okay, thank you. Um, Tim, anything you want to pick up? Uh, yes, uh, people have, have made lots of good points that I, 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 I don't think the fact that they are, are good necessarily uh, undermines the case for standing by Ukraine. Um, Yes, there is a far right in Ukraine. Um, as we have heard, uh, there, there probably 
I don't know much about it, but there probably has indeed been uh, human rights abuses against people in the eastern part of the country. Uh, it is a very corrupt country, and I know there has been a, a policy of Ukrainianization, uh, which has probably uh, had, had a horrible effect upon people's lives. I, I'm also, I also am sympathetic towards those who say that they prefer peaceful resolutions and they are opposed to militarization of the region. And yes, uh, I, I'm uncomfortable about labeling people as good or bad or indeed evil, Although I would say that in the case of Putin, um, are we good? Maybe we're not good, but I think we're better. I think we're better. Um, and the, in, the, in the case of uh, when this comparison is made between what uh, Trudeau or New Zealand has done to civil liberties uh, in the course of COVID and then comparing that to uh, Putin's rule, um, I think the, thing, the point is that what has happened under COVID has been the exception. And it is the exceptional nature of it that has caused such outrage. It is that a democratic right and a way of life has been upended. That is what has angered me so much. By contrast, in the case of Putin, when he arrests someone for holding up a banner against the war, that's normal. Yes. That's the difference between our two systems of life. That's the difference between our two systems of life. And finally, on the, on the question of, uh, <clears throat> inevitably, we, we are at risk of descending into what about her and saying, well, look, the West does this. We turn a blind eye to what's going on in the east of the country. How can we possibly feel? Is it not imperialism? Is it not racism for us to step in and suddenly say, oh, in this instance, we've decided to get involved? Well, think of it like you're living in a city with an appalling crime wave. And you know there's all sorts of crimes being committed at the time, all over the place, right now at this very moment. And you happen to witness a little old lady being mugged. Do you at that point say, well, I could step in, but you know what? There are people being mugged all over this city right now, and I know nothing about her. I know nothing about that old girl. She could, she could be a bank robber or something. She might deserve what's happening to her. And who am I to step in? Because, you know, I've, I've passed the odd bum check as well. You don't make those calculations. You act in that moment because you can see it from happening. And one does so for universal human reasons. I am compelled to do so by Christianity because, as St. Paul says, when one part of the body hurts, the entire body feels it. The entire church is in pain. I wish we would do more for other people in other parts of the world outside Ukraine. But this is a problem we can do something about, and we should. Thank you. Frank, anything you want to pick up then? Yeah, I think that we need to take a reality check. You know, the idea that we need a peaceful solution rather than a military solution, we don't want to militarize Ukraine, is bizarre. Because Ukraine is so militarized already that the idea that somehow you know, we are militarizing it, it doesn't make very much sense at all. Mm. I, I think you also have to recognize that we live in this in a very complex, very unique moment we're in. Let me give you my story. I'm, I'm originally Hungarian. I'm really Hungarian, not just originally. <laughs> and, as you, and as you probably know, in the Transcarpathian region of the Ukraine, the Hungarian minority, like the guy over there said, is, is as oppressed as a section of the Russian minorities in the Ukraine. For example, Hungarians are no longer allowed to teach their children in Hungarian, Hungarian language. They're being forced to you know, teach it in Ukrainian. So I'm not very happy with Ukraine at all. And I think that in, 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 in point of fact, when it comes to corruption and oligarchical maneuverings, there's no difference between Russia and the Ukraine, except that Russia has more of them and is, is stronger. That's the difference. So I'm not unaware of the fact that Ukraine, Ukrainians are not angels. And also um, that Russians are not the devils. It's a, it's a more kind of complicated situation than that. 
But nevertheless, you know, whatever the situation is in the Ukraine, whatever the past, whatever the uh, oppressive measures taken by the Ukrainian governments towards different kind of minorities, we are confronted with, with a very simple fact that this country is being invaded by a nation that has got not just simply limited ambitions, but global ambitions. So when you talk, make fun of the domino theory, you know, we, the, Russia isn't just simply saying, oh, I want to have this particular region of, of Ukraine or that particular region of, of, of the Ukraine. Russia has embarked on a project of dividing Europe, basically the reimposition of the Yalta uh, Treaty, but in a new form. And that's something that's of direct interest for me. So the reason why I want to fight back isn't because I'm altruistic, and isn't because I'm, I'm, you know, I want to democratize the region or I've got some kind of grand project. It's because I actually feel directly threatened. Now, I feel threatened by what's happening in a way that I've never felt uh, all my life, and I've got, I've got a very long life, because, because the threat has never been so direct and so immediate. And I'm surprised that other people think of this as something over there, and think of it merely in terms of solidarity. It, it's not that. It's a much more immediate issue that's to do with us in the here. And, and there's nothing wrong with uh, taking measures in response to your own national interest <coughs> and in relation to your own survival. And particularly, there's nothing wrong with basically saying, it might sound racist, it might sound whatever, but I do think European civilization, you know, as a European, is really special and it's well worth saving. And given the fact that the European elites are doing such a good job at screwing it up anyway, right? Uh, we need to step in there and do whatever we can to put that, that issue, uh, issue right because the stakes are very, very high. If European civilization you know, unravels in the way that it is, it's an issue for the whole world. Not because we are, Europeans are special or unique or whatever, but just simply because there's been a number of cultural and, and political elements within that civilization that are important for humanity as a whole, as there are you know, in, other, in other parts of the world. So I, I, I think we should stop thinking in a kind of narrow pedestrian way of what it is like here in Britain. And we should stop thinking, well, who are we or whatever. The point is, we cannot trust governments and we cannot trust what they're doing. We have to be vigilant. So when I call for a, a, a no-fly zone, the, the main reason why I call for that isn't because I want the British Air Force to kind of fly into action. The reason why I call for that is because we need people in this country to understand that fighting and the need to fight it's not something that happened in the past, nor is it something that might happen 500 years from now, but it's an issue that we're confronted with here and now. And one way or the other, we've got to get that message across. Otherwise, we do become almost parasites on the, on the fight that other people are carrying out, the struggles that other people are carrying out in other, other parts of the world. And that's also the reason why, just one final point, I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to organize something that's equivalent of an international brigade in the 1930s. But to do that in a contemporary form, where we encourage people to go to Ukraine and fight. You can do that at the end, right? Because otherwise, I'm going to leave. We've got too many people, right? Joan, and then I'll t try and just grab as many of you as possible. I've got you, so, right? Joan. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, I think it's very hard in this discussion to come up with some compelling arguments about what we can do, and I will come back to that maybe in a minute. I kind of slightly di disagree with Frank about Russia having ambitions 
you know, really expansionist um, ambitions that could, you know, take it into the Balts and, and elsewhere. I think that primarily Russia is a defensive power. That has been the driving force of its foreign policy, you know, which has you know, now led us into, in, into this war. It's, it may seem a, a contradiction, but it's a defensive power. And that's what Tim said about the mishandling of, of Russia because of hubris, mainly because of in that unipolar moment in the 90s when after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Russia was completely prostrate and humiliated, um, mistakes were made. And I think what that tells us is that Frank's original point about the inability to understand history and the forces of history, the inability to think strategically or long term, that is what has you know, led us on the Western side uh, to, to where we were now, because Russia was never, has never been, except for maybe one brief moment, never saw itself as a Western um, uh, a power. Uh, but it, it saw itself as a European power, and its place is primarily in Europe with uh, an orientation in this direction, not towards China. So, so, so Frank is right in that sense that it's, um, you know, th this is not a natural uh, alliance of, 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 of Russia and, and China. And, you know, if there had been some really long-term strategic thinking done, they would have seen that Russia was the natural ally in a counterbalancing alliance uh, against China. Um, but it's far, far, far too, too late for all that now. So um, this, this is where we, we are. Vladimir Putin is, is not crazy. I really disagree with this kind of laziness, you know, a, a, a approach that's been actually encouraged in foreign ministries around Europe that he's all <laughs> that he's gone crazy. He is a 19th century thinker. Um, his motivations are these, you know, um, ideas of you know reviving Russia, becoming you know returning it to some kind of great power status. He's got its security concerns. Plus, I think. What you can see over the past 30 years is the difficulties uh, that Russia has had in letting go of Russians in the former Soviet states, and particularly in Belarus and Ukraine, and letting go of primarily those, uh, those countries and still seeing itself as this great power you know, that calls the shots in, in its near abroad. And that's certainly um, um, you know, been a, a motivation in his... Uh, foreign policy. So, um, but coming back to the question of, you know, what kind of a settlement could end this? Somebody asked, what can the West do? Well, it's not up to the West to decide what settlement is acceptable here. It's up to the leaders of Ukraine uh, to, to decide that. And unfortunately, they're in a really terrible predicament. Um, because in terms of the, how this is going to play out, the only scenarios that I see is now is that, well, there's, there's probably th three. One is that Russia s finishes what it started um, with this terrible um, artillery bombardment laying siege to, to major cities. So the attrition, the cost, the human costs of this force the leadership in, in, in uh, Ukraine uh, to... Um, make a settlement that essentially surrenders control of part of its Quick. territory. 
a, a defeat, which I don't think uh, can be ruled out for Russia, that it is actually forced back. To, in a, in a, a, you can already see the problems of morale and disorganization of this army, um, that it could be routed and suffer um, defeats. Plus, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in Russia itself and the kind of destabilizing Very impact of these things. Um, and, um, okay, I'll, I'll, I will stop there. Part On three the in the summing up. Right, okay, right, okay. I'm really sorry, everyone. <laughs> yes. And then you, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, just a very, <coughs> very brief question for Frank. Uh, you, you said three times this evening, I think, that there's a danger that Russia might disintegrate, which is a very big claim and maybe true, I know very little about Russia, but if you could explain at least a little bit, if you can flesh out a bit why you make that claim. Thank you. Quickly, yeah. I don't buy the introspective and pacifist view um, that I have come across privately and has been expressed here tonight, that somehow the West... NATO, the EU, or most especially Boris Johnson, was somehow complicit in this invasion. I think our partisanship is defeating objectivity uh, here. Putin invaded because he does not believe that the Ukraine is a country. It's as simple as that. And what behaviour the West exhibited before is not the key reason why that country is now being um, destroyed. People also say that we shouldn't intervene in any way because it doesn't work. And again, tonight we've heard Iraq, Syria, um, Libya, uh, Serbia. There have been many interventions that have failed. There's some alternative facts, friends. There are many examples where we did not intervene in any way. Rwanda, millions of people died. The Uyghurs, two million people in concentration camps. And perhaps most pertinently, Chechnya, 100,000 people dead and the capital destroyed brick by brick. This is a fellow European democracy whose president was elected on 75% of the vote. It is close to us. It is appealing for our help. If ever there was a moment for the left to rediscover its spirit for the international brigades, the medical aid that went in at the same time, the okay. support for refugees, then... Now is that moment. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. A number of people have spoken about the internal character of the Ukrainian regime, but it completely misses the point. We're not talking here about a civil conflict. We're talking about an international conflict. And so it begs the question, how in the 21st century should nations relate to one another? And there's a very simple principle at play here, which is that we ought to believe in and support the sovereignty of nations. No matter how big, how small, or how powerful. And that means we support the right of Ukraine to exist. And I think, Joan, you've had a bit of an easy ride tonight because you've said Russia is a defensive nation. It isn't. It started this war, and then you went on to correctly say that Russia, Putin, wants to revive this notion of 19th century great power politics, in which it, as someone else has just said, doesn't think that Ukraine has a right to exist. It is important that Russia gets a bloody nose in this conflict so that we can establish for the 21st century the sovereign equality of all nations upon which you cannot have any democracy or enduring peace without. Okay, thank you. Right. Frank, you gave a, a talk in the summer where you talked about um, irresponsible elites globally. 
Um, and you made the point that um, you know, it's all very well when they're playing around with silly rules about COVID, um, but when it comes to uh, foreign policy, it gets really dangerous, and here we are. Um, I've thought about that quite a lot since this whole thing has been unfolding, and it does seem that this is a process that is unfolding. You know, whatever happens, it's not going to stop at Ukraine, right? And what you've been describing is a situation which we, you end up having to take sides. The only kind of, I, I suppose the thing that occurs to me is that you, you, you can take sides without just assuming that your side is perfect, right? That taking sides doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of making better arguments and recognising the problems with, uh, with your own elites, which are considerable. Um, and that's why I'm very glad that you talked about moral rearmament, which is something that I think it would be really good to have much more of a serious discussion about that than you know, what we tend to re read in the press, which kind of is along the lines of, oh, well, war, war will shake us out of all of our woke values, you know, as though it's just as simple as that. Um, but I think it's quite a, a difficult discussion to have, but also a very important one. That, that, that's a point, just interestingly, because somebody said to me, how can you support Boris Johnson and Trudeau? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, how can you support them after what they've done? They've destroyed our liberties. That's what you're doing if you support Ukraine. <laughs> and there is quite a lot of people who think like that at the moment, right? Just to say, I condemned Trudeau and I'm no fan of Boris Johnson. It's irrelevant to the point, but anyway, that's um, right. Well, Frank, I just wanted to see if you could make the distinction between, if you are making a distinction clear enough between supporting something like an international brigade and, um, you know, throwing, throwing your lot in, or it sounds like, with, um, you know, Western leaders. I mean, I read this uh, Andrew Neil column a few weekends ago that, you know, makes your skin crawl and he's sort of celebrating the fact that, yeah, NATO's back, it's re regained its moral. Um, dominance, Germany's back on the stage, the EU's found its purpose, you know, Britain's leading the way, well, hurrah, and you think, oh, Jesus, is that, is that the future that's laid ahead of us? Um, I'm reading Quiet Throws the Dog by Sholokov at the moment, and it's a bit like eating chicken in Kiev or drinking Russian vodka, you, you wonder who's watching you on the tube reading a Russian, but there was some, you know, reading that book now and understanding the history of um, not just solidarity between, you know, Germans and uh, Russians in the trenches, but Ukrainians and the whole, you know, sort of what I'm saying is if you, if we lash up with Western powers in a way that some people have pointed out an anti-imperialist position didn't used to or oppose, what, you know, I understand what you're talking about the future if Ukraine is defeated, but what is the future of that kind of um, alliance as opposed to an international brigade? Because you know, that in 20, 30 years doesn't look particularly good to me. Right. There's no chance I could take everyone, right? So I, I'm, I'm basically taking about five people and some people are leaving because we're over time, right? And we need to go to the pub so we can kind of, you know, chat. Yes. So I suppose my question, Frank, is whether you accept that a no-fly zone would necessitate a war with Russia. Because if you do, then why talk about a no-fly zone at all? Because... So much of the time, people who argue for no-fly zones tend to not explain what, uh, what that would achieve. And you've talked about the humanitarian corridors. Well, they're not being bombed from the sky. They're being shelled and they're being attacked on the ground. So why not um, stick British boots on the ground? Why not, why not argue for a war with Russia between NATO and, uh, and the Russian Federation? That seems to me to be where uh, you, you're going. Um, which is all very well. I just wonder why you start with the position of a no-fly zone. Um, and I can't see, I, I thought it was very striking that the people coming and arguing for 
um, a no-fly zone almost immediately as this invasion was announced. Um, tended to have sort of the EU flag in their Twitter bio or the NATO symbol in their bio. And what was interesting was that they weren't arguing from the starting point of national interest. They were arguing as though they needed a war to be able to save face. And they seemed to be proceeding on the basis that no matter the consequences, we need some kind of intervention in order to save the reputation of the EU and NATO. And that seems to me to be extremely dangerous. And you may be arguing for that, and, you know, and John made a similar point, that Russia needs to be seen to have a bloody nose. And I can understand that to some extent. But um, I suppose my, my, my end question is, do you see, um, are you really, really arguing for an escalation? Can you put it in those black and white terms? Or are you wanting to have your cake and eat it by arguing for a no-fly zone? Um, so Frank, at the beginning you talked about um, people needing to act in their national interest. I think that's what you were saying. Um, and leaders um, acting in their national interest. Um, and I just wonder if that's what all nations should do, uh, is, na is act in their own self-interest. Um, as, a, as a leader, as a moral leader, um, how can you, can you do that and, and not end up behaving as, as Putin is behaving, which is probably in his national interest? Um, so that was a question for, for, for the whole panel. And the second one was, you also mentioned about um, morally rearming ourselves and what should we do. And I just wondered if um, a leader from, you know, from a bygone age, a couple of hundred years ago, whether our morals back then were more obvious to us that, that actually that, that leader wouldn't need to sort of think too hard or the country wouldn't need to think too hard, they would just act in a certain way that was triggered by their, by their morals and their values. Okay, thank you very much. Hi Frank, uh, you talked about the need to kind of denit ourselves from endless globalisation and I was wondering what you thought of kind of this opportunity of de-engaging from a global oil market and going back to kind of having countries that are much more energy self-sufficient and whether that's going to be an opportunity in the next few years to really push away from, you know, kind of a fossil fuel market to a, you know, market where countries can produce their own energy um, renewably. Yeah, I, very, very interesting comments. And just on the, the financial and on the energy thing, that's certain, those two issues are certainly things that the Academy of Ideas are going to be pursuing in the next period of time so so do look out for specific meetings a couple things that we've noticed all of us that we've seen uh, inc incredible amounts of division tribalism and separation and social media has played a big role in that you can't have a voice anymore everybody needs to realize and take a step back and cooler heads will prevail but freedom of speech is absolute if you don't like somebody's opinion you don't have to listen to it now as far as uh, Groupthink, that's too much of a feature. It seems like due process and the rule of law has been abandoned in, in favor of mob rule on Twitter. You know, it's a central bank had sovereign immunity that was disregarded. Civil asset forfeitures are a feature and the politicians haven't, haven't done anything. And the other, the other issue that we have to get into is the, that why politicians are no longer trusted. They've run our economy into a ditch since the credit crisis. This is something I know a lot about, okay? Now we're seeing two, two, uh, two pounds per liter for gas. It can triple or quadruple, and inflation is around 16%. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I'm sorry to keep stopping you. Just very briefly, um, there's a relationship here that I, I'd, I'd like the panel to tease out if they possibly can, and that's the relationship between civilization, geopolitics, and history. 
Because Frank talks about the revenge of history, the return of history, but then also says it never went away. I always thought history was simply what we did, uh, but civilization seems to be this immutable, monolithic thing. Are we still, are we living with the fallout of Huntingdon? Is Dugan simply reheated Huntingdon? And was he always right? And if he was wrong, doesn't that make the stand for national self-determination, national sovereignty all the more important? But that's a fundamentally Western idea. And it's fundamentally then Western civilization that we seem to be defending here. I think the people that are making the point about, um, uh, you know, Ukraine is not the full shilling or, um, uh, you know, that it's corrupt or whatever, aren't really, you know, the, the test of Ukraine is now. So, uh, you know, if Ukrainians had just said, oh yeah, sure, come govern us, um, then it wouldn't have been an issue. But the fact that they're fighting plainly shows us that this is a question of self-determination. That, that seems to me you know, the thing, you know, so when we talk about imperialism, um, that word seems a bit inappropriate, or maybe it is appropriate, it's just you, you're looking at the wrong imperialism. Um, uh, what I found that is disturbing, really, I suppose, is, you know, when we're talking about, um, uh, you know, the warrior's honour and the, um, you know, the getting in touch with history and the, the tradition, the only people I hear talking that way are in Russia. You know, this it's got a, like a sort of Alexander Dugin kind <laughs> of a, um, you know, and you're thinking, well, are they the only people like believing themselves enough to say, you know, screw you, or uh, I'm trying to be polite, but you know, like, uh, and are essentially, you know, indifferent to other people's national self-determination, except, you know, they just see their own thing. Whereas in, you know, Zelensky's, uh, I mean, uh, maybe this is all kind of Western-oriented kind of propaganda, but he seems a much more kind of globalist, George Soros type of a guy. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, uh, you know, that, so in that sense, maybe, you know, the, the, the Russians uh, are pretty much winning this, this war in that sense, as you outline it, of um, who's got the, the cojones to do it. Interestingly, Eric Kaufman's got an article in on her today making the point that quite a lot of people say, well, you know, at least Putin's fighting woke politics and identity politics. <laughs> and there is a bit like, oh. Anyway, yeah, go on. Um, yeah, I, I, I think trying to get your head around this is showing that we've not really got the language to deal with it very well. So I get, I get the point that uh, Frank's making about, um, you know, there's a fight on, why don't we fight? Uh, and, but... Uh, you know, dealing with kind of cowardice that exists more broadly in society when it comes to the crunch um, which you are facing and realising that the Ukrainians' fight is our fight. That, that their fight is the fight that, that we need to understand. And it is about national self-determination. It is about you know, the right to exist, the right to determine who you get as your own leader, whether they're a nutcase or not, it doesn't matter they're corrupt or not, it doesn't matter, because you deal with it, you deal with it, not somebody else. And that's been a bit lost completely. But then the kind of trying to Quick. second guess why Putin does what he does, why Russia does what they do at the moment, means that we don't really have a sense of what power means today, how it works. And unless we get that, we can't do anything about it. Um, and I slightly want to, to, to say that to wish somebody would start a, a no-fly zone is to think, well, where's the power? 
where, where does that power come from? I get the, the International Brigade, that's us. We can stand up and do it. I do not get the no-fly zone because you're okay. asking the very people who are liable to cause an utter catastrophe because they have no clue about what they're doing <laughs> to pursue something uh, to okay. degree. Right, these are like sentences, right? I've got you, you, you. Um, I'm just wondering if the panel could think about the possibility of why wouldn't the West um, put an oil embargo or you know, refuse to take Russian oil because that seems to be one of the most powerful sanctions you could apply and yet we're not discussing it at all. I mean, it seems to me to have the equivalent potential of a no-fly zone. And yet, you know, we, we'd all have to suffer a little bit, obviously, with our price of petrol and oil and so on, but nobody's prepared to think about it. Okay, yeah. Right, I don't think we've had an imperialist war over the last few, few decades. What we've had, uh, Western countries going in for hot wars of their own cultural identity politics. What we face in Ukraine, I think, is a question of working out what is our national interest. I'm not Hungarian, Frank, so to me, I must admit, two weeks ago, it wasn't immediately obvious what our national interest was. But the question of moral authority that the gentleman at the front raised, I think, is really crucial. And to me, at the end of the day, it comes down to what are you prepared to die for? Because if we can't begin to answer that, then we won't really know how to live properly. And the, moral, the question of morality is, I think, linked to the question of democracy. Now, you may say, as the last gentleman said, and lots of people say, well, why are you backing this buffoon Johnson? Why would you trust them to do anything positive? Right. That doesn't okay. matter. Right, the sentence has now gone on and Tim has to go. Right, okay. You've got one sentence. Tim then speaks, then, yeah, go on. If Russia is such an existential threat to uh, us, why stop it in the fly zone? I mean, I completely understand the logic of you, but if, if war is inevitable, isn't like a no-fly zone just a pause? Okay, thank you. That was brief. Thank you, everyone. Sorry to those I didn't get in. First of many discussions. Tim, give us your final thoughts, please. Uh, yeah, sorry, I've got to go and collect my dog. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I think the first person to mention the idea of a no-fly zone in the House uh, of Commons was Tobias Elwood, and there was a plaintive cry from the press gallery of, no! And it was me. Um, and the reason why I said that is because, uh, A, I'm terrified of nuclear war. Totally open about that. I think that's, that's not something we should be all warrior code about. It's a terrifying prospect that no one wins from. And second, if the argument being placed by the government, whether you think Putin's crazy or not, the argument of the government is that Putin is insane. And if the argument is that he is insane, then why would you push him into a corner uh, by imposing a no-fly zone that internationalizes the conflict and, if anything, encourages him to step up uh, the kind of weapons he's using. So I'm against, I'm against it for, for a mixture of practical and entirely, I think, rationally cowardly <coughs> reasons. Uh, someone asked the question, uh, uh, someone said something about Iraq. Um, I, I'm actually struck by how little Iraq has been mentioned uh, in the whole conversation about this. I don't know if that's because we've moved on, but I think it's more likely because actually this is Russia's Iraq. It's not our Iraq. There's no threat of it being our Iraq. It's actually Putin that's done it, which is a nice reminder that other countries can make imperialist mistakes as well. Uh, and uh, some people argue, of course, you should let them get on with it. I don't, I, I don't agree with that. But nonetheless, I, it, they, they are the ones who have made an error here. And this reminds us that other societies can be decadent. 
We talk about Western decadence, I talked about it, but actually Russia is an incredibly decadent society because it is run essentially by uh, criminal gangs, and that's, uh, and that's one reason why it has found itself in this situation. Uh, finally, uh, the question of, of what is it we are, we are willing to fight and die for. Um, I, do, I don't know, uh, but sometimes history forces you to make a choice. And when I think about the international brigades of the 1930s, it would probably disappoint some of my right-wing friends for me to say that I would unquestionably have been on the side of the international brigades. Yeah. With the awareness that there were Stalinist murderers involved in it, uh, that it was highly divided, and it lost. It was a failed cause. Nonetheless, sometimes you look at something and you look at it and you think, I know the right side. I feel it in my gut. And in this instance, I have no doubt Ukraine deserves what we call international solidarity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tim. If you need to sneak off um, your um, dog duties, Sorry, then that's fine. Really uh, but thank you very much for that. Joan. Yeah, in case I didn't make it clear right at the beginning, but I think I did, um, I'm completely on the side of Ukraine. The war is a, an abomination, and we need to stand up for the principle of self-determination, which has been trashed in so many instances over Brexit, uh, over a whole series of Western interventions over, over many years. We need to stand up for that. The question is how, Frank? So, um, you know, we do need a hands-off Ukraine international solidarity um, campaign. What can we do? I'm much more in favour of the idea of an international brigade than a no-fly zone because the logic... Of, of your position, Frank, which is the question that um, uh, I think it was Luke at the back asked, is that to enforce a no-fly zone, you have to take the fight to Russia. You have to take out their S-300 missile systems, which are in Belarus and Russia, which can sh uh, shoot down any um, uh, jets, Western jets, that, that try to enforce a, a no-fly zone, which have to refuel every two hours, which will be sitting ducks. So you have to do that first before you can think that you can enforce a no-fly zone. So that maybe that's not the best thing. So what are the other things? Are we in favour of punitive sanctions that are going to hit uh, Russian people and put them out of their jobs? Or would we like to go down more the road, yeah, of maybe an embargo on uh, Russian oil and gas? So there's no point uh, taking away half the reserves of the Russian central bank if the European Union is sending 1 billion euros every single day, which is what is happening to Russia um, at the moment um, uh, for, for, for Russian oil and gas. So that is the question which is still being debated in the EU. Obviously, the US has already done that. Um, and that is the first crack in the kind of transatlantic alliance on this uh, question of how to prosecute <coughs> this war um, against Russia. I would rather that we try and think a bit more imaginatively about solidarity that mobilises ordinary people rather than asking NATO um, to enforce a no-fly zone um, or, or, or to take some other kind of military action. So if we want to, if the end game is to kind of restore some sense of the need to fight for some things, that some things are worth fighting for, I think that's the way to go. Okay, thank you very much, Jen. If the Western world hadn't signaled that uh, the simple fact that no matter what Russia does in the Ukraine, 
they're not going to uh, do anything about it militarily, Russia would not have invaded Ukraine. Right? That's the story. Russia invaded the Ukraine because they knew that this was a risk-free uh, sort of enterprise. The door was opened for them by the behavior of the West, and that's something that we have to deal with and understand now. Even though we are not the governments, we, are, we didn't make those kinds of decisions. That's the first point. The second point is that this uh, war is not between Russia and Ukraine. It's not just between two nations and they can decide one way or the other. I think where John is a little bit wrong is in imagining that just because Russia is a defensive power, and it is a defensive power, it's not therefore going to be very aggressive. History shows us that very often the more defensive you are as a power, the more likely that you're going to lash out, but more importantly, the more you're likely to unleash a chain of events which will not end at the border of Ukraine. And what I see happening, very, you know, no matter what happens in the war, is that that, that chain of events has, has already been unleashed. Now, things are not going to go, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle, no matter what happens, because both Russia itself, uh, which has become extremely fragile, but also the rest of the world, now thinks very differently. NATO is not strong. You know, NATO has not rediscovered its purpose. NATO is a, is, a, is, a, is a kind of empty zombie organization that momentarily can do certain kind of things, but it, it has no real sense of purpose that it might have had in the Cold War era. The European Union is not any more unified today than it was a year ago or 10 years ago. The differences of interest have really come out with Germany being quite, quite clear about what it was. You all heard the Prime Minister of Holland go on record and say that whatever you guys think, Ukraine will not join the European Union. Right? So don't, don't think for one second that anything has changed as far as these organizations are concerned. And therefore, it seems to me that the issue at stake for us is not to somehow invigorate NATO or, or invigorate the European Union or even expect anything good to come out from what they are, what they are doing, but to recognize I think recognize very, very clearly that there's an existential struggle that is going on here. Uh, it's already been put in place, and un unless we understand the geopolitical uh, sort of stakes in a world that is being redivided in front of our eyes as we speak, unless we take that on board, you know, we're going to be in big trouble. And we have to think more creatively and, and, and understand that whether we like it or not, military options, including putting boots on the ground, in whatever form uh, that, is, that is possible, is, is going to have to happen anyway. And the question is, do we wait, do we, do we basically kiss Czechoslovakia goodbye and, and, and say, well, you know, it, there isn't going to be anything more going on after this, or do we wait until another Poland gets invaded and, and basically you know, realize that we actually screwed up, we waited a little bit too long? Because the, more, the longer we wait, the longer we allow this process to continue, without somehow morally rearming ourselves and taking matters seriously, the more we are going to be implicated and, and going to be seen by history as essentially uh, sort of uh, wonderful commentators and, and, and observers rather than people who take uh, their agency and their action a little bit more seriously. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so if you want to... If you want to join the International Brigade, Frank is doing a kind of stall at the next meeting, right? Yeah.
The Academy of Ideas, it is not, it's now to be recorded, the Academy of Ideas has not launched an international brigade tonight, right, if anyone's watching. Um, however, um, thank you actually for some very thoughtful contributions from across the board on the panel and from the audience. I would like to encourage you to support Rick more selling the van on Friday uh, with any help that you can give him, look at your leaflets. But what the Academy of Ideas will do, even if it's not an international brigade, is it it, it is determined to try and dig deeper into this issue and all of the issues that it throws up. So our Battle of Ideas Festival is on the 15th and 16th of October and I hope we'll see you at it and early bird tickets are available. But we will also try and have as many discussions before that. And in the most immediate sense, we're going to the Marcus of Cornwallis, which is on Marchmont Street, round the corner from the Brunswick Centre. It's actually really close, but I've got no sense of direction. I won't be joining the International Brigades because it would lead to a defeat, basically, in terms of logistics. But anyway, can we thank everyone and thank yourself for your really worthy